0: Hey, this is The Last Coffee House. We have a treat today. Thomas Sowell to the rescue. This guy is two for two in blowing me away with his books. Seriously, might be the most important intellectual Americans need to read. Like, needs to be required reading for all students in America. Students, adults, fetuses, everybody needs to read his books. It's very accessible, but it does such an immaculate job of broadening your perspective on reality. Thank you so much. This one was published in 2006. It's called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. So what are the contents of this thing? Okay, we've got the intro, and of course, uh, because he's awesome, he opens with a whole bunch of caveats about how applicable all the stuff he's going to be talking about is, how there are generalizations about how this information is going to apply and where the weaknesses are in the argument and all that stuff. So the book is really about cultural inheritance, or the way i define it as cultural meme rates. How do memes move around cultures and create that particular culture? And one of the big theses of the book is that the subculture of rednecks has roots in the Scotch-Irish-American culture, so it's something that was imported or that settled here, and then created the subculture of rednecks in the South, that would eventually be appropriated by black culture. And so it's it's really, uh, there are a lot of parts to it, and it's so interesting, oh my god. So redneck culture first, to establish what that is. It's the kinds of things, these kinds of things, aversion to work, and of course these are stereotypes that are associated with rednecks in general, but uh, this is something that was part and parcel of their culture at the time. Aversion to work, promiscuity, vanity, boastfulness, (laughs) it was considered cracker culture. (laughs) And has precursors in Scotland, so, like I said, um, Scotch-Irish culture that came to the southern United States and settled there. A lot of these things were part of that culture. And this was recognized and treated. There are so many references to the way that people were described back in the day. Of course, we didn't have the same kind of statistical analysis and Bureau of Government Statistics and all that stuff doing all these analyses of the population at the time. So he used a lot of contemporary descriptions of people and things like the fact that there were a bunch of schools, I think there were Ivy League schools, that didn't admit somebody named Patrick for like centuries. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because it was seen as part of these a region, or being reflective of a particular identity, and so they discriminated against it based on the fact that they believed that they would exhibit these kinds of traits, like aversion to work. But this is something that apparently goes all the way back to ancient Celts. There's a kind of cultural through-line from the ancient Celts, through the Scotch-Irish, through American Southern people, the rednecks, through black culture today. And something, uh, what was reflective of this, there were things like southern dairies. Southern dairies were not run well at all when it came to like their production and how much they supplied. There was a kind of a culture of carelessness in the southern dairies and the way that they treated their cows, like how and when they grazed them and and what they did with them and how many they lost, whether they fenced them in and all that sort of thing. But there were German farmers at the same time in the same area who settled there and outperformed the southern ones who were subject to this culture or part of this culture. You also had the same thing with wineries, so people who made wine, people who came in from foreign countries were better at creating wine than the southern culture that was already here. You also had low literacy rates in the south at the time. Other parts of southern culture like out-of-wedlock births and higher rates of rape. And so you have this entire context of this culture that was inherited by the South. And there are a whole bunch of things. That's what I love about this. Because uh, there are some things that I might disagree with. But the whole point is you take all this information into one. And you try to figure out, okay, what's the real answer? And that's one thing about Thomas Sowell. That's what he's doing. He's trying to figure out, okay, what's the real damn answer? You know, I'm giving you the tools to figure out the real damn answer if you disagree with the way that I'm presenting this. But this is how you have to look at this stuff. It's really complicated. There are a whole bunch of different parts. But then, and I'm gonna have to do this in two parts because this is gonna get super long again. I'm sorry, I did this with the coddling of the American mind, but I have to do this again. Sorry. So, black rednecks. We go into the next chapter where, okay, we've we've established what redneck culture is. Now we're going into black culture and what happened and how all this works itself together. So the argument is that most of black culture that we see that's depicted historically and of course as we'll get into, we'll get into it, okay, because it's not black culture, it's black subculture, (laughs) it's a a certain number of blacks who were in a particular place at a particular time who inherited a particular culture, it's not all of the... American blacks who were completely different, who had a completely different culture, who did completely different things and inherited completely different things and had completely different outcomes. So very clear on that point. So even things like speech patterns, so speech patterns that we associated with like ebonics, end up having precursors in this Celtic, Scotch-Irish kind of subculture that came to the United States and ended up in the South. And these are people who immigrated from South and West England are apparently the Locus of these cultural artifacts, but things even including like dat for that, dat, dat, and axe for ask <laughs> were apparently present in the, the subculture that came from England and Scotland and Ireland. They were apparently, this might have been specifically South and West England, but these speech patterns came from that and then were inherited by the black culture that grew up in you know slavery days and were emancipated and then had to deal with you know what's going on around them. They inherited this culture in these speech patterns. People today, and this is another huge idea about this, is using history now for contemporary purposes to make contemporary points, which is a disservice to everybody. But people now will say, okay, all the stuff, all the bad things that are part of black culture, all of it is attributable to slavery. That's the whole point. You know, slavery and Jim Crow and all that, that's where it all comes from. But the argument is that this is not in any way correct. (laughs) Not not close. And uh, Soul would say, obviously, there are going to be some there's going to be a historical through line that comes from slavery that's going to position people in different ways and all that. You have to take all that into account, obviously. But when it comes to all this cultural stuff, you can't just say that it's based on skin color. There's no way to say that. And So this, this culture, it's not from Africa. That's very clear that this, the stuff that they inherited, you know, the speech patterns and all those things that we talked about, redneck culture that they do, like carelessness and all that kind of thing. It doesn't come from Africa. A disdain for education. Another part of what was Southern subculture that became black subculture was a disdain for education, which was a huge deal, which was a big important thing. And then you have things like West Indian blacks and Caribbean blacks. They, they come here and do a hell of a lot better. I think Nigerians do as well. But one of the big things that came up when you have integration happening and everything else going on is that you had the 60s, you had the civil rights movement on one side, but you also had the development of the welfare state. And then suddenly you have this big correlation between the advancement of black families, especially in these redneck subcultures, this big correlation between their decline and the advancement of the welfare state so and one of the things that he points out here is that it was a hundred years there were a hundred years in between the end of slavery and when we finally have the decline of the black family when we go from 20 percent out of wedlock rate or single-parent households up to 77 or 80 percent when you get into the you know early 2000s and and now you have like high 70 percent of out of wedlock births and single-parent households among among this black subculture Uh, i mean i think it it's it's just generally taken of all blacks in the American population, but still there's no, it doesn't make any sense to say that slavery caused it when it took a hundred years for that to happen. When they have a strong family at first and they're doing fine and they're having this advancement, despite all of the actual systemic things in their way, you know, the laws that are in their way (laughs) despite all that, they're doing much better and better, have stronger families and then you have the welfare state that just decimates how well the black family is doing. And you can't just draw a line from slavery to the decimation of the black family. You have a missionary attack on culture, and this is something that, of course, people would get uppity about nowadays. Would say that okay, missionaries going and saying your culture sucks, and we're gonna do we're gonna do it a different way, which is what they did in a lot of the redneck black subculture areas, is that they said no, this is how we're gonna do this. You know, it's about morality. It's about you're gonna speak in this way and have this grammar, and we're gonna replace your culture, and it had a very positive effect, even if they're espousing you know their religious stuff or being racist or whatever else. Still, when they give them this particular culture, when they say that, okay, no, it's about morality, morality is important, it's not about boastfulness, not about being lazy, and you should speak in grammatical terms, those were very beneficial cultural things for that particular black subculture to have and to hear and to be supported in because as you'll see throughout there was a different kind of black culture that was going on in the north this entire time that didn't have this redneck subculture that they were dealing with and the other black subculture the northern black subculture they were the ones who were working hard and had all these positive cultural artifacts that they inherited they were in a context of that positive culture that had all those things so it's very likely that they inherited so much of that stuff from those people. And it showed, you know, they did very well. <laughs> it was a completely different experience, but it's something like, uh, so New England. New England was the other subculture that you could get stuff from, and it had much more positive stuff. And then you have schools like Oberlin and, and Dunbar High School was a big one that he returns through over and over again that were these cultural enclaves where you have black students who are doing a fantastic job, who work very hard, who have all these positive things that motivate them, that they have all these strong families, and strong commitments to community and they do very well. They're the ones who ended up being, you know, the first black federal judges and police commissioners and all that sort of thing, getting elected to office. They're the ones who do exceptionally well and what Soul's argument is, is that there, it's all these, these cultural memes are the things that are getting them to these points and the cultural memes are the things that are keeping black rednecks down. <laughs> but at, at a certain point, you had the southern blacks move north. So the Southern blacks with the redneck culture move north and start mixing with the New England culture of Northern blacks. And you have this backlash because the Northern blacks who, you know, were going to good schools and being professionals and all that kind of thing now have these Southern blacks who come in with a different subculture and who are causing a whole bunch of problems. And then that inflames not just the Northern blacks, but all the other people around them who are part of the American polity. And these are places like Chicago and Detroit. And so once you have that, then you have a different situation about it. Then you have this backlash against it where they're being attacked now and saying that it has something to do with race when it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with the the cultural things (laughs) that they were brought up in and then today we have this weird insane idea where we're trying to build a black identity collectively around the redneck culture that they inherited so all the worst things that they inherited that became part of a black subculture now we're saying that that's their identity and we're saying that that's who they are instead of supporting the New England kind of cultural enclave and saying that well all these positive things are the things that we should be supporting where we white liberals I'm not a white liberal but white liberals. liberals. Liberals in general will say that, okay, well now we're putting you in this box and saying that this is your black culture. Your black identity is this thing. And of course white liberals are the best at blaming others for, (laughs) for everything. So that's what they start doing. Saul points out that it, it was not a problem for Asians in the United States. They were subject to all sorts of racism, especially from blacks in their local areas. But they would come here completely impoverished and do perfectly fine in a couple of generations and be well above the white native population in a couple of generations. Likely, Seoul would say it's because they come from a different culture. They have cultural benefits that they get to use that lets them advance. And then we have this whole issue of mixing morality and history. History, like any other discipline, it should be a science that we're just trying to figure out what happened. But you start injecting morality into it, and it becomes something else. It becomes a tool for contemporary politicians. And again, this whole idea of slavery as causation, not supported in studies, not supported in the literature, that slavery is the thing that caused the issues that we have today. It's much more complex than that, and there are much better explanations for what's going on. And again, the cultural artifacts like violence, arrogance, loose sexuality, self-dramatization, you see those things in things like rap and repeated in this culture, the subculture, the redneck subculture. But it's from centuries of the redneck culture that came from the ancient Celts to the Scotch-Irish to southern whites to southern blacks. That's where that stuff came from. And he acknowledges that this is considerable circumstantial evidence. Again, showing humility in what we're trying to establish here. It's just when you put all the things together, then it looks like that's what makes the most sense of the way the history, American history, worked out. He brings up this idea of middlemen minorities. So these are people like uh, Jews in New York who use all the tools in that area to like take over the garment district. And they tend to be, and this happens all over the place. You know, it's not just Jews in New York or Jews in Germany, it's the Lebanese, the Chinese in the Philippines, the Chinese in Southeastern Asia. You have people from the Caribbean in different areas, the Koreans in different areas. All of them end up being these middlemen minorities who use a bunch of the tools of a, a particular culture like in America And they are very successful, but they're not seen as creating wealth, but they're seen as stealing wealth. So if a Korean goes into a black neighborhood, creates a store and is selling stuff or whatever, creates a handful of jobs and pays taxes, then they're not seen as somebody who's doing something for that community. They're seen as they must have done something wrong, something evil or whatever. They must have stolen this from people who are here because why don't we have this? So they end up resented, especially in black communities, but in others as well, obviously. They see things like family ties is really important. They'll work the family into their businesses. And you have this idea, again, of German Jews who were concerned about Eastern European Jews who were coming over to Germany and increasing the hatred against Jews because they had a different culture. One funny, weird thing is that a white person apparently needs 15 more IQ points <laughs> to be able to match the actual material success of Asians. Of course, these are really complex situations, but what a weird situation. That's a full standard deviation. Like, that's that's a big jump. You need 15 more IQ points to match the, the success of an Asian if you're a white person. Which, of course, suggests that there are a lot of cultural things that are going on as well, not just whatever your IQ happens to be. Then we're going to get into slavery. We talk about slavery. It's already so long. Why is it so long? I don't even talk that deeply about any of this stuff. Anyway, so race and slavery. So the vast majority of history, it was not about race. It had nothing to do with race. It was about everything else. Any reason you could separate yourself from somebody else would be a basis for enslaving that person. There was no evidence that slavery was actually under attack as an institution until about the 18th century. So it took a long time. Everybody practiced it. Everybody thought it was fine. And then about the 18th century is when people start saying, you know, maybe this isn't so great. <laughs> and then Europeans just dove in and become the, became the destroyers of slavery. And this is something that is often overlooked, is that places like the, the France and the UK, they put a lot of work into abolishing slavery, not just making it illegal in their country and their territories, but they had a bunch of ships patrolling slave trade routes to try to stop people from engaging in slavery at all. To the extent that a number of Arab countries, when they would go and engage in the slave trade, they would throw slaves overboard so that they wouldn't be, you know, attacked by the UK or, or the French. Mostly UK, I'm sure. And the Islamic slave trade was much worse than anything a Western country did, so keep that in mind, much worse. So many absolutely horrendous things happened with the Islamic slave trade. But the process of seeing slavery as morally unacceptable was actually a very long process. It, it began, as far as we know, with the Quakers, who had to have their own internal process to decide that it was evil. But this isn't something that just happened, or something that I know today we could just look back and say, Oh, we figured it out, what are you talking about? This is something that required a long-term process. Some Africans actually used slaves as religious sacrifices, even. And there were white slaves in the Islamic world, which you never hear about, of course. Uh, There's this Saharan slave walk where you have a trail of skulls, where they just walk these slaves for miles and miles over the desert, and they'd just leave them there if they couldn't make it, and so you end up with this trail of skulls of people and you have people uh like Edmund Burke at the time he was concerned about the context and the mutual dependencies of slavery not just the the morals in the abstract there were a whole bunch of things built around the whole function of slave slavery, not just in the economy, but in politics, in the way that people thought about <laughs> the way the country worked and about the world, how the world worked, and, and all sorts of other things. So Burke specifically talked about there's a context and there are mutual dependencies that we have to figure out before we start you know ripping things down. Today, it's just discussed in the abstract. It's just, oh no, the ideal of you know, not having slavery, and that's all we need to know about. And that's not how this stuff works, that's not how reality works. There was one life lost in the war for every six slaves freed, so keep that in mind. There were laws against releasing slaves, so even if you were a slave owner and you just wanted to release your slaves, in some places, that was illegal. And then we have the Compromise with the Northwest Ordinance, where North banned it, but the South was able to keep slavery. And you have our founding fathers, specifically, who would just been completely trashed to the point of even our D.C. mayor recently, was talking about getting rid of the Washington Monument or contextualizing the Washington Monument and a bunch of other monuments. Uh, Washington freed his slaves at the death of his wife. He wanted a plan and talked about a plan for abolition of slavery, but in practice, it was not easy to get that kind of thing done. It's not something that you just, okay, well, agree with me or I'm going to hit you with this thing. You know, that's not how real life works. And when it got to that point, we fought a civil war. So (laughs) it's not that easy to just do this kind of stuff. Uh, Jefferson acted repeatedly to limit slavery in general. He would do little things where he could to try to limit the effect and ability of people to enslave people. He even proposed laws declaring slavery legal that actually lost by one vote. You know, it was was like one guy who didn't show up that day (laughs) and they lost based on that. But there was the compromise of the Northwest Ordinance. And the population at large had a perspective, you know, it wasn't just in a vacuum. The population had a perspective and there were a whole bunch of other concerns, like there were concerns about vigilante violence by groups like the KKK. If you just freed the slaves suddenly, what kind of a cost would there be to the slaves lives via vigilante violence if you don't have a grassroots effort to make sure people are on board with this thing? the south would have never united with the north in one union if slavery was outlawed at the beginning so that was a compromise that had to be made and importantly moral principles cannot be separated from their consequences you know whatever your principle is whatever you think it is or how perfect it is there are going to be consequences for whatever you do to try to effectuate that morals and you have to be aware of what those consequences are that's reality you know just like uh, when it came to the vote or how much representation somebody gets for slaves so if you have slaves what what kind of representation do you get? The whole three-fifths provision. Now, people today say that, oh, I was saying that black people are only worth three-fifths of people. It's such a racist horrible thing. But if you gave them full representation, all that would have done was give the slave owners who got to speak for their slaves, was give the slave owners a greater voice to be able to perpetuate slavery. So, you have to be mindful, and this is the thing that modern liberals, and maybe liberals then too, but liberals today especially, they just think, I have an ideology. Done. None. That's all I have to think of. That's not how reality works. And then the legacy of slavery. So there's this idea of the shame of black, the black population, because it's how, how it's been represented in American society when it's not in any way unique to them. <laughs> it's it's just people are so egocentric that they'll just say, oh, no, it's just, you know, black race based slavery. That's That's the only slavery that exists. It's not unique to them. Everybody has been enslaved. They don't need to feel one iota of shame for slavery, nor one iota of shame for not having rebelled at some point and just taken over the system or whatever the hell else. It's a ridiculous idea to say that it's some somehow unique. It's only because it's the most recent and it's the most visible in the most powerful country in the history of the world. That's the only reason it has such a clear context, that being the context. The guilt of the white population, of course, it's ridiculous. Nobody alive today was involved in any of the slave stuff, and even at the height of slavery, it was an extremely small amount. And, not only that, you know, it was like less than 6% at the height of slavery actually owned slaves. Uh, Not only that, but a disproportionate amount of freed blacks owned slaves. Blacks today in the United States uh, earn more, on average, have way better lives and everything, than any blacks anywhere in the world. So, they have gained by being here. Obviously, as Soul points out, that's uh, some consolation for having gone through the things that they went through, but still, that's the reality of the situation nowadays. And again, to reiterate that black marriage rates declined precipitously starting in 1960s in the development of the welfare state. It's hard to imagine that the civil rights movement would have had a great impact, a negative impact on the black family, but The welfare state saying that, yes, we can step in and be your spouse if you don't have one, it seems like that is much more likely to have dramatically, negatively impacted the black family. And it's not because of slavery. It was a 100 years before that that slavery was an issue. Brazil imported several times the number of slaves that the United States did, but they didn't have any leaders arise to challenge the idea of slavery or develop their country into the greatest country in the history of the world. So keep that in mind. Historically, slavery was very rarely based on race. It was based on every other thing for the vast majority of human history. It was just because of the technology that was developed, we finally could base it on skin color. But that's, uh, for the entire history of slavery, that's uh, just a fraction of a second when it comes to it. It was just the most recent one, so that's what we associated with. And, of course, the argument is there's some kind of unique evil of white people, which could very well be the case if you did a whole... (laughs) whole accounting of white people in general, but it's not because of slavery. Slavery is something that everybody did, and it's ridiculous to try to paint white people as having some kind of special culpability when it comes to slavery in general. Everybody has abused power over other people. That's something that people do. When they have power over people, they abuse it. That's how things work because we are human, we are evolved primates. That's how we function. So that's going to be part one. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do for part one. Thomas Sowell, again, anybody and everybody, just read his books. Even if you want to pick apart any given empirical claim or anything like that, it's extremely important to see how this kind of reasoning goes together where you really take the time to try to put things together in a way that makes the most sense and exhibit humility in trying to do that. That's, that's what people need to be doing and this is an extremely novel way of looking at something that is just taken for granted when it comes to where black culture came from and and what we need to do in the future when it comes to oh we'll get into that we'll get into that cuz he goes into history and how we use history as just this blunt tool nowadays instead of just trying to understand and learn from it so many good things so many excellent ideas the guy's incredible 100% i really appreciate you guys listening this is the last coffee house and i'll see you i'll see you on the next one on part 2 and we'll have some other books after that all right bye oh wait i keep i'm so bad at mark related things. So also I, I have a Patreon. If anybody is interested, it should be linked in the description. I would really appreciate it. Anybody who wanted to support it. I've been doing this for a couple of years now, just reading every book under the sun and trying to give people good discussions based on those books so that we are the most informed we can possibly be. If nothing else, I would absolutely love just to be able to cover the hosting costs. That would be fantastic because I've been paying those for a long time. So just that would be incredible. But other than that, uh, yeah, I'm always going to keep doing this, no matter whether somebody gives me a dime or not, I'm always going to do it. So I really appreciate it. Really appreciate people listening. Uh, This is the last coffee. I'll see you.